Good evening and blessings, and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. The Buffalo Soldiers were the uh, units formed uh, when the United States Army, after the Civil War, opened its ranks to African Americans. And they opened their ranks because during the Civil War, uh, more than 180,000 black men had served very gallantly in the uh, Union Army and Navy, and actually something like 18 earned the Congressional Medal of Honor. So they did open the ranks of the U.S. Army to black men, but they set up segregated units. And these were called the, the cavalry units, 9th and 10th Cavalry, 24th and 25th Infantry, were racially segregated in that the soldiers in them were African Americans and their officers were invariably white. A uh, black man simply could not rise higher than uh, an, being a non-commissioned officer. None could, you know, be uh, in charge of troops and so on, as Oliver Law was in Spain. On, June t- on Juneteenth, what, uh, why Juneteenth is important is that that was the day in Texas, which was the last state of the Confederacy that was liberated by the Union armies. And it's celebrated as a holiday of freedom by, by people of African descent, many of whom had been enslaved. And uh, it, it then spread to many places. I actually spoke at a Juneteenth celebration in Westchester County about 20 years ago. And there have been celebrations because for the people of African descent who lived in Texas, that was when they became free, not when Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, because the Emancipation Proclamation could only free people who the army could reach or people of color who could reach the Union Army. And it took the Union Army way down uh, until June uh, uh, 19th, 1865, to get down to Texas and liberate the last slaves. Okay, and the significance, and you talked about this in your book, Black Indians, and you've been on my show earlier. Sure. And you talked about, right, there were several places during the Underground Railroad uh, movement uh, that blacks were able to uh, seek refuge. And just as just as the blacks had a place to seek refuge from freedom, slaveholders had a place to hide their slaves. That's and true. Wasn't, wasn't Texas one of the places that many of them fled with their enslaved people to avoid um, Lincoln's uh, Emancipation Proclamation, to avoid the Underground Railroad? Yes, that's, that's very true. As a matter of fact, all of the rest of the Confederate states had been subdued and occupied, and so the slaveholders 
forced large groups of their slaves in chains. They marched them south out of the Carolinas, out of Mississippi and Alabama, into Texas where they thought they would be safe from the Emancipation Proclamation. And also, they also hoped that the Confederates in Texas would be able to continue the fight, that they wouldn't have to surrender entirely as uh, General Lee had done at Appomattox in, in Virginia, that there was a chance that they could fight on. So you're right. It became Texas also became a place that slaves escaped from also. And they right. skipped across the Rio Grande border into Mexico. So by the time of the Civil War, you had something like 3,000 African-Americans escaped slaves largely living in Mexico. Actually, what went on in, in Texas started the war with Mexico because the slaveholders were bringing their slaves to, to Texas. And Texas was part of Mexico. And in 1829, Mexico <clears throat> had banned slavery. So there was real trouble. The Mexicans said, you can't do this. And the Texas, uh, the white Texans, particularly the slaveholders, then uh, revolted against the Mexican government. And they tried to set up what they called the Lone Star State. And when the Mexicans said, no, you're, you're, you're part of uh, Mexico, you can't do that. And they attacked. Then this was the war over Mexico in which the United States went in, as it always did on the side of slaveholders, fought and defeated Mexico, and not only took and kept Texas as a state, but took all of Mexican territory that extended mm -hmm. from Texas all the way to California. That became part of the United States when it was really a part of Texas. What many call a black president, that banned slavery yes. in Mexico? <clears throat> yeah, I wrote, yeah, I wrote about him in Black <clears throat> Indians. His name was Vicente Guerrero, and uh, he was a, a poor mule driver who uh, worked. He was of black and Native American descent, and when Mexico revolted against Spain, he became one of the military leaders, and he took his troops up into the Sierra Madre Mountains, and he trained them there, and it was even there that he, at the age of 40, learned to read and write. And he kept fighting, he didn't give up, and finally Spain was defeated, and in 1829, Vicente Guerrero, this person of black Indian uh, origins, was became president of Mexico. And he, what he, and, and what he did is he... Wait a minute, Leslie. What he did was even more wonderful. He mm -hmm. freed the slaves. He abolished the death penalty. He put through a constitutional amendment that ended discrimination on the base of race, culture, or nationality in Mexico. He was, that, as one historian said, both the George Washington and the Abraham Lincoln of Mexico. That is incredible, and I just want the audience to know that I learned everything um, that uh, Mr. Katz is talking about in his book, Black Indians, and from all the different interviews that we were fortunate to have him give us on the gist of freedom. And um, we are going to be uh, playing your audio books um, later on this summer. Uh, that's what we Good. normally do, play audio books. So 
you for that uh, wonderful wealth of information. And can you resume back to your original plan schedule, which was to talk about World War II? Okay. I, I think what I've established by the stories I've told you about what happened to Ethiopia and the democracies did nothing, so fascism took over. What happened to Spain, where the democracies did nothing, and fascism triumphed, maybe I didn't get to that, but General Franco, with the help of Mussolini and Hitler, became dictator of Spain. And six months later, Hitler launched his attack on Poland that began what is officially called World War II. Now, at that point, the democracies no longer felt they could sit, just sit by and hope that Hitler would attack places they didn't care about because he, the Poland had had an agreement with England and I think France. They had an alliance. So England and France were finally drawn in. And on June 22, 1941, when Hitler attacked the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union became part of the main allies that were fighting fascism in Europe and around the world. And, of course, the United States came in uh, on December 8th, the day after Pearl Harbor in 1941. And I remember that. I was a, I was a high school student at the time that Sunday, and I was attending a birthday party in Brooklyn for a one-year-old child. And I remember when the news came of the attack on Pearl Harbor. But what I think what I'm getting at is that it took a long time. If you measure from the Japanese invasion of Manchuria to Pearl Harbor, that's 10 years before England, France, and the U.S. decided it really had to fight fascism. The Ethiopians didn't wait that long. They fought fascism in 1935. <clears throat> the Spanish people tried to fight and defeat fascism from 1936 to 1939. And 40,000 people from <clears throat> how many countries was that? I said 32 or three countries left their homes and went to help Spain to try to defeat fascism. But fascism was helped at that point rather than hindered by the large nations of the world. And it, and it finally took the kind of effort that the uh, volunteers who went to Spain put together, black people, white people, Asian people, men, women, all together from all of the nations of the world to defeat fascism finally in 1945. I don't know if you want me to go into any other aspects of it. I've left a lot of things out. you know. But once again, as you said, people can consult my article on it it's somewhat lengthy i think you'll find it interesting on the huffington post or commondreams.com and i will i will post it on my website i hope soon well i think you covered uh, a lot about the article um we tied in june 19th the juneteenth holiday um the article is superb I think it should be in, uh, included in all the curriculums. Um, is there any other points in that article you want to highlight before we end the show? Well, I just want to point out <clears throat> that at the time African Americans were going to Spain and trying to help Ethiopia to fight fascism, 
we had a kind of our own brand of fascism here in the United States. It was called segregation. It was called discrimination. And it was buttressed by state laws that prohibited people of color from doing what they wanted, even attending schools of their choices. And also it was buttressed by lynching, the attacking of innocent, usually very innocent people of color, uh, taking them from jails or seizing them on the street and hanging them, largely in the southern states, but not entirely. And this was the country, this was the U.S., that went to war to fight against fascism and the racism the Nazis were spreading throughout Europe. Mm-hmm. I, I can tell you from my, one of my own experiences, when I went in the Navy and I was on <clears throat> my ship, the USS Cook Inlet, <clears throat> I, I must have got a, one of the uh, white officers angry at me, and he reassigned I, my, uh, <clears throat> my position if the ship was attacked. And um, I was assigned to the forecastle. That's the most forward part of the ship. Okay. And there was a drill. Alarm went off, and I had to run to the forecastle. And I get to the forecastle. I go down the stairs. And lo and behold, I'm, there are six men sitting there I had never seen before. All six of them were African Americans. That was their battle station, too. And they kind of looked at me and smiled. I guess they figured I was some kind of trouble if I was <laughs> thrown in to be the only white person to be among them. We, we joked around. We got along fine. But I have to tell you, Leslie, I, I had not seen those men before on my ship. And I never saw them again. Now, I, I can only say there are probably two reasons for that. One of them I know was that our, our captain was a southern bigot. And he probably kept these these people of color out of sight. But Mm -hmm. I also think there could be another reason. They, being on a ship with a captain like that and spreading that kind of bigotry, they maybe thought it wise to stay out of sight too and not appear on deck, lest some harm come to them. But this was the this was 1944, rather 1945, U.S. Navy, the final defeat of the Axis powers, their racist policies, imperialism, and all of that. And there I was, seeing right in front of my eyes, really what were essentially racist, fascist kind of activities going on, sponsored by the United States government. Now, before we end, I'm curious. We know who the leaders were in the civil rights movement during Vietnam. Who were the leaders during this war? Uh, Annie, you mentioned Philip Randolph. You mentioned Paul Robeson. Yes. Give us a backdrop of what was going on in the state and who were leading these protests. You talked about the march in Harlem and what mm-hmm. the nurse had done. But... Uh, <clears throat> go into depth of, you know, were there songs, like during Vietnam, there were the musicians made records, the Beatles, you know. Was there any sort of, of collective protest or demonstration uh, going on? And, and television, was television common in households? Was radio common? You know, today we have the Internet, we have social media. 
But how was the word getting out for these uh, to help fight this fascism? Well, let me just put it this way. Uh, The NAACP and other black organizations said they were fighting, and this was the slogan, for the double V. V, the letter V standing for victory. Victory over fascism abroad and victory over racism at home. This was the battle. And a lot of the black soldiers and sailors that went in, and there were volunteers as well as drafted people, they thought that if they showed their valor and they fought for the United States, surely, and, and helped defeat fascism in Europe that was, you know, running, overrunning Europe and the rest of the world, they, that would be a victory for their gaining civil rights and equal rights. And the leaders were those men, Paul Robeson, W.E.B. Du Bois, A. Philip Randolph. And uh, they, they carried on uh, agitation. They even had a friend in a woman named Eleanor Roosevelt, who was married to Franklin Roosevelt, the president of the United States. And I have photographs of her attending uh, USO cl- clubs for the servicemen to relax back in the United States when they were on leave. And you can see in these photographs, she's sitting there with black and white servicemen and women. And she was an integrationist at that time. So uh, people like Mary McLeod Bethune, who was an advisor to President Roosevelt during that time, was also a good friend of Eleanor Roosevelt. And Eleanor Roosevelt helped a number of the black leaders like Mary McLeod Bethune and others who were considered radicals at the time to reach the president's ear and to she she helped do things like getting the 99th Pursuit Squadron, which was the the the, the black uh, Tuskegee Airmen, started. Mm-hmm. She pushed that. People didn't think at that time. Oh, black people can't fly guns. They can't man guns while planes are flying in the air. And she got that thing started, and she was one of the main supporters of that. And of course, now, the Tuskegee Airmen were very important. I have to ask you two about two more people, uh, two of my favorite people. Einstein also read about Einstein and Paul Robeson. Yes. They met with the president to stop lynching, and I didn't think I don't think the meeting went too well. And also Ida B. Wells. So could you talk about those two? And I promise I'll let you hang up after this. Uh, let me. Well, I, Ida B. Wells was, of course, the leader of the anti-lynching campaign, and had been since the 1890s when she was. Uh, driven out of Tennessee for exposing lynchings uh, when white uh, butchers were lynching uh, black butchers because they were their economic competitors. They hadn't done anything. And and Ida B. Wells continued. I, I think she died before, I think she died in the late 1930s. I'm, okay. I'm not sure. Uh, and there was Lucy Parsons, who I wrote about in Black Indians, who was a radical leader going back to 1886 came out of texas and she was of african and native american descent and she was marching in parades and in picket lines and so on in chicago and there were others all all around the country Uh, my father was involved with a group here in new york called the committee for the negro and the arts you mentioned television well there was no television to speak of in the 1940s in the early 1940s 
but uh, black entertainers couldn't get jobs in radio. They had yeah. real trouble getting jobs in movies. They certainly couldn't be stars. And uh, my father and his good friend Walter Christmas wrote a play on black history that was performed in the basement of the Schomburg Library in the late 1940s. And among the stars were young people that nobody ever heard of, like Sidney Poitier and Harry Belafonte and wow. Will Marshall. <laughs> so well, there, there, there was all kinds of uh, agitation going on. I'm glad you mentioned that because, you know, we recently lost Maya Angelou and we lost uh, Ruby D. Yes. Um, and Ruby D. in one of the articles I just read about her, she said she didn't own a television. And she said she'd never owned one. It was because just what you explained. Uh-huh. She said they, they had too many stereotypical um, blacks, um, you know, on yes. television. And she, she didn't like it. And I also uh, just read about Eartha Kitt. And she was in a picture. And behind the picture, there was a picture of a poster of um, the name of the show. It's one of those... Uh, Oh, it's escaping me now. It's a famous, it's like an Amos and Andy, but it's not. And it's a, it's, it's, the show is a um, fraternity, the lodge, some sort of lodge. Uh-huh. And I can't think of the name. You will know it. It will definitely come to me after the show. Right. But it was these types of stereotypes that were only on the radio and on yeah. television. And, um, and I want to commend your family legacy for trying to change that image because that's what we're doing right now on this show, trying to negate everything that we see on mainstream media about African-Americans. And we want the truth that is usually um, hidden from our children in textbooks and from us in general. So I really appreciate you and your work, and that's why I ask as many times as I can because uh, you inform us with a wealth of knowledge and empower us by doing so. So I appreciate you. Well, I want to say the same right back at you, Leslie. What you're doing is performing a very important community service so that people, whoever listens, black or white, doesn't matter, they need this education. A lot of people don't know it, and it's very important that we learn these facts. Education can help defeat the the enemies that we're fighting. Yes. All right, Mr. Katz, um, let's give out your contact information and your last parting words. Okay. Uh, my contact, uh, people can get to my material at williamlkatz.com. I have a whole slew of essays there, often accompanied by my pictures, which I'm very proud of. And you can read about my books like such as Black Indians or the Black West or the Lincoln Brigade or other things. Uh, and I'm you know, very happy to be on your program anytime because you're trying to spread the truth. And heaven knows we need that a lot. That's it, right. So that is our show for tonight, and we will see you guys again, uh, hopefully this Thursday night at 8 o'clock. Again, you can listen to our archives on iTunes at www.blackhistoryuniversity. And thank you, and enjoy the rest of your Father's Day holiday. Bye. Bye-bye.